Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Well, good morning. So we're continuing a series called The Spirit-Filled Church, 12 Marks of a Spirit-Filled Community, which basically we're looking at 12 marks that characterize the first century church after it was filled up with the Holy Spirit and it began to spread throughout the world. Anyway, the, the, we've been looking at these marks uh, not simply as an academic exercise, but really to try to identify these marks and more importantly apply them to our church, our church today, Bellevue Christian Church. Anyway, the mark we're going to be looking at today is that a spirit-filled church is a changing church. A spirit-filled church is a changing church. And basically, the, the main point being that, again, if, if we want to be a church that continues to be a, a vehicle for the expansion of God's kingdom, we have to be willing to change at time. In order to see this, we're going to look at, primarily look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where we look at a few other verses, but those will be our primary verses. In these particular verses, we'll be able to see really a snapshot of some of the challenges that the early church was facing and how they were able to deal with them in a very productive way in order to keep their growth happening. And hopefully, by the end of the sermon, we'll be able to glean a lesson or two from that passage. But again, as a reminder, you know, we're looking, we've been looking through the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, we see uh, really the, the explosive growth of the first century church. Now, at this particular time, at this chapter, we're not exactly sure of how many people were attending or were involved in this new emerging movement that's called Christianity, or soon to be called Christianity, but we have enough clues to help us to know that it's gotten pretty big at this time. Again, when we look back in chapter 1, we saw that there was about 100, 120 people gathered in the upper room praying intensely. And then following that, they, the room was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the people spilled out into the street. And it's there where Peter gave his amazing gospel-centered prayer. And we see some uh, conversion happening. And we read, in, going back to Acts chapter 2, where it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people, an amazing thing. But it didn't stop there. If we go to chapter 4, we see by chapter 4 that, that, mo- that uh, the growth continued to the point where they had at least 5,000 people. You know, reading on it says, But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, sometimes you could read this and say, well, that, you know, why didn't they mention the women? The reality is, is that the women back then, they didn't have the status they had today. And really, the reality is when they were counting people back then, they were mostly interested in men because they were trying to get an accurate count of how many people they could recruit into the military. As a side note, today's Veterans Day. If you're a veteran, stand up and let's show appreciation. Now you have to stand up and sing your song about your branch. You know, mine was anchors away, my boy. <laughs> Debbie didn't want me to say anything about the veterans. So. 
Anyway, so happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Yeah, so anyway, they, that's why they counted men, because they were looking at the number of men they could recruit into the army. And so if you were to add the women, if you were to add the children, some estimates at this particular time there'd be somewhere between eight and 10,000 people that would have been part of this emerging church. And so what we see is, you know, today we see that most churches start small and they become medium-sized and then they get a little bit larger. And at some point they become what's called a mega church, which is about 2,000 people. But we see here that this church, the early church, Christian church, started up at 3,000 people one single day. And then soon they became not only a mega church, but a, but a mega, mega church. And that's a large church, again, with 10,000 people. Debbie and I were in Texas last week. We attended uh, uh, my sister's church, Community Bible Church, I think it was called. They have 12,000 people, 12,000 people in that church, five services. I, I like to take things from other churches, but I always leave a donation. But this is just their, <laughs> this is their catalog of just outreach activities, a color catalog. Anyway, so I do leave a donation for this. Thank you. <laughs> but anyway, so as good as the growth is, you know, we know that growth brings problems, right? The more people, the more problems you have. And in this case, you know, again, they, they did, they, they encountered some problems. You know, we don't know about all the problems, but we definitely know about one problem. Reading on, it says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So again, growth, and we have a problem. And again, just a little bit of background here. When you have the, uh, what's the difference between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews? Basically, it's a cultural difference. You had basically people that were living in Jerusalem, and then people were living in the outside, outlying areas of Jerusalem. And those people that lived outside often spoke Greek, where the ones within Jerusalem would speak, uh, or speak Hebrew or Aramaic. So it's really a cultural difference. So you had these people that were living outside of Jerusalem, and they were, a lot of them spoke Greek. And what happened is when they, when they would age, they would want to move back towards uh, Jerusalem. And so the, basically the men would uh, gather their wife uh, and, and their wives and they would go back towards Jerusalem. They would move back towards Jerusalem. And this was for really a practical reason because they believed that when they died, it was important to live close to the temple, uh, to die close to the temple because some actually believe that if you weren't buried near the temple, you actually would not experience the resurrection. And so it was a very real thing. But what happens is so the men came back with their wives and as happens around here in the United States of America, the, the, the wives would often outlive the men. And so what you would have is this big population of widows in Jerusalem that became really a kind of a, a, a social situation, a social problem, a problem that quickly spilled over into this new church. And so again, because there were so many widows, what we see is that they began to become, the Grecian women began to be overlooked some translations actually say neglected. I think it's the message. It actually says something like they were actually discriminated against. So this is a very real problem, very real problem that so much so if it's not dealt with, you have a, at a minimum, you're going to have the local church is probably going to stall a little bit, you know, have some problems because it'll be stuck. But at a maximum, you're going to have major divisions that's going to hinder the spread of Christianity. Now, the apostles being the 12 apostles, these are the 12 apostles, they could have said, listen, this is not our issue. We don't want to deal with it. We've got more important things to do with, deal with. 
You know, they could have started pointing fingers, pointing to blame. They could have said to the widows, you know, if you would have stayed back in your hometown, you would have, you would have had people, you would have had family members to care for you back there. It's not our fault you decided to move to Jerusalem. But they didn't do that. They dealt with the problem. And they dealt with it by first establishing or clarifying their priorities. Reading on it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now you read this and it's easy to think, oh, you know, they're being a little bit arrogant. These 12 apostles, you know, big shots. They can't wait on the poor widows there. And, but, the, you know, some would probably think, you know, back then they would probably thought, you know, a better response by the apostles would have been, okay, there's 12 of us. Let's take account of all the widows and divide it by 12. And then each person would get that number of widows assigned to them. Now that makes sense. But actually, when you think about it, there's probably at least 500 widows around that time. Divided by 12, I think it comes up to like 41 widows per person. And that's a lot. It's, not, it's doable, I guess. They could take care of 41 widows. But the reality is, again, is that they had other things they had to do. They were also responsible for making sure that the gospel is being spread, especially in this early church. And they, were not, they were not being arrogant by saying they cannot wait on tables. Another side note is that you know, when, when it says to wait on tables, I think a certain vision comes to our mind. I know the first time I probably read this years ago was that I, I just envisioned that the widows are sitting around having their afternoon lunch or whatever, and these apostles are going around and waiting on them. That's not a totally wrong vision, but it's probably not a totally right vision either, because really what we're talking about here, waiting on tables, is probably tables where people sat and they distributed either the food or money for the food especially when you consider what we read back, I think it was in Acts chapter 4, where it said they sold all their possessions, got the money, and made sure nobody went without. And so it actually could be a distrib- tables that are set up to distribute the food or money so they could buy food. And so that's really what's going on here. You basically have managers who manage the particular tables. And another aside is that some people use this passage to justify having... Uh, uh, the role of deacons in a church. We have deacons in our church. We have about 15 deacons that care for a lot of the needs of the church. And some people take the, the, from the idea of having deacons, they take it from this passage because the underlying word that we translate here to wait on somebody is actually the same word that is translated later as deacon. In fact, 1 Timothy 3.8 talks about the qualifications of deacons. It says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in too much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, that word deacons is the same word as translated, translated wait on tables, but the more common translation is actually to serve. It's a person who serves. So basically what you have is you have a situation where it's the people who are serving, especially leading up these particular ministries, those are really, they're called deacons which is true again for our church. Anybody who leads up a ministry is technically a deacon, even though we've assigned it to a certain group of people. Anyway, so you have the church growing up, you know, growing, getting, getting larger and larger, and you have problems, but they don't ignore it. They deal with it very wisely. You know, it goes on to say, uh, the apostles say, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And so what we see here is again choosing seven men, not just any seven men, 
seven men who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, I think sometimes churches are guilty, even our church at times, in just selecting people to serve in ministry roles based on their education, based on their occupation, based on their knowledge in the world. Not totally bad things, but here again, it puts the priority that the people would be filled with the Spirit and full of wisdom. But because that's very difficult to measure on anybody, what we do is we kind of default to the mode where we focus on experience and education and hope and pray that the spiritual fullness of the Spirit will come later on. Anyway, so they've assigned these Spirit-filled people and they handed over responsibility, this responsibility to them, which again implies that the apostles had the original responsibility to care for all the widows, pretty much care for everybody. And they, at this point, they must have realized that, hey, we're dropping the ball a little bit, and so we need to assign this responsibility over to these seven people. Not only the responsibility, but the authority that comes with the responsibility so that they don't have to be micromanaged. And so, again, that's what they're doing. They choose seven people, and we actually learn the names of those seven guys. It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And aside, if you're pregnant and you're looking to have a baby, here's some good names to pick from. I like Prochorus myself personally. Nicanor, possibly too. Anyway, so this is again what's, we're naming these people. They're, they're not just ordinary men. These are guys that are filled with the Spirit. And we know they're godly men. So much so that Stephen, the first one mentioned, actually becomes the first martyr of the church. And so, again, the church was growing. Had a problem, very real problem about the widows. The apostles dealt with it. And they dealt with it first. They, they realized this, both, this, component, uh, this situation contained both a spiritual element and a material. They put the spiritual over the material by making sure that they're focusing on the word. And then, but they made sure they did not neglect the widows. And the result being that so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so again, this passage is a very nice snapshot of some of the challenges of the early church and how they dealt with them in a very, very mature way, a very good way. And more important, what we think you see here, we see, if we look closely, if we revisit this a little bit, we see a pattern that actually can be applied to our church today. And the pattern looks something like this. Again, you have growth, and growth causes problems, and problems require changes, and changes produce more growth. I repeat that. Not too difficult. Growth causes problems. Problems require changes. Changes produce more growth. Let's say it together. Growth causes problems. Problems require changes. Changes produce more growth. Okay? Very simple. And again, tracing it back to this story, they were growing. They had a problem. The widows were being ignored. They set up a system. They restructured a little bit put deacons in place or servants in place, and what happened is they grow. Again, a very good model that not only applies to the first century church, but also applies to the church today, including our church. Now, some of you have probably been here as long as we've been here, maybe even longer. Uh, how many were here in uh, 2004? A few, you know. I think the first service we had about six people or so. 
or a dozen people or so that were here back in 2004. Now, 2004, without going into a lot of detail, it was not the healthiest time for this church. They had, they had, the pastor they had uh, before had it for 23 years actually was gone, and they had six months without a pastor. And the congregation was down to about 50 or 60 people. The church was pretty much stalled in its growth. And so the church was really, again, in a kind of a tough place. Again, I don't need to get into the details about it, but it was in a tough situation. And there were people that had left the church, but there was this core group of people, some of you are still here today, that were loyal to the church, that believed that God had put this church here, hadn't put, put this church here for over 100 years, that he was not going to let it to die. And if they'd bring in the right people, they'd be able to, to jumpstart that growth again. And at that point, Debbie and I were hired to come into the church, and really I think we were hired to stimulate that growth. And it's not to put any credit on me or anything else. I, I, I can't really pinpoint what happened, but the church began to grow. And it began to grow just because we started to do some very basic things. We started to be, have more of a presence in the community. You know, start doing things like giving away turkeys and doing the vacation Bible schools and, and, and opening the shepherd's door and all this kind of stuff. We started doing things that gave us a presence in the community, but also did things within the church that basically opened up the church so people could see what a nice church this was. And when the people did come to the church, when they came to the front doors, we made sure they had friendly greeters there. We started a first impressions team that was headed up by, by Cindy Robertson, did a phenomenal job of making sure that many people were welcome, and all the people were welcome, including the people that are here today. It was a phenomenal thing, time that she was focusing on that. Again, people would feel welcome coming in here. She would remember the names. And then once they came in here and they took a seat, we made sure that they didn't have a, a weird experience. They had a healthy experience. That if they came in, they come in, they heard, they heard a sermon. It was going to be a biblically-based sermon. That they were going to have a combination, a blended combination of hymns and, and contemporary songs and, and, and sung in a way that would welcome people into the presence of God. And after that, you know, they also, we also had that time, we had children's ministry, we had teen ministry, you know, that people feel comfortable bringing their children here, bringing their teenagers here. And then following the service, we, we opened up that other room that we now call Cafe Connect that allowed people to kind of linger around and get to know each other and have some snacks. And so again, what we saw is that all that put together resulted in growth, good, healthy growth, so much so that in 2008, in the middle of the, the recession or the economic downturn, we were in the middle of, I don't know what the project cost was, but very expensive remodel of this whole sanctuary where people said, no, we need to stop that. And we said, no, we need to finish that because we're, we're basically poisoning ourselves. We're, we're putting ourselves in a position for growth. We're not going to stop remodeling the sanctuary. We didn't. And again, after that downturn, we saw an upturn in growth, so much so that by 2010, we started the second service. And so, again, we, we, had, we had problems there that we dealt with. We had growth. We had problems. And we began to grow. But at some point, I think probably, and this is a, where I have a hard time thinking through it, probably three years ago, and I don't know, two, three years ago, we started stalling in our growth a little bit. We slowed down in the growth. And it's uh, very difficult to, to pinpoint when that happened, but it did happen. You know, we began to hit what some would call the 200 barrier. Now, 200 is, you know, I can't say that every week was 200, but on the average, I think we're a place where we're getting 
you know, 175, one week, 225. You know, we'd have a great Sunday like we did last Easter. We were at 300 people. But overall, probably an average, somewhere around 200. And so what I think happened is we hit what is known in the Christian circles as the 200 barrier, which is simply a, an individual, uh, uh, invisible barrier to where a church needs to pass through, a small church needs to be passed through in order to grow to the next level to a, become a mid-sized church. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, it's a small church is not bad. In fact, some churches cannot physically grow beyond 200 people. You know, a church out in the country might not have 200 people within 10 miles, you know, so they can't grow. But we're in zip code 15202, and I'm not up on exactly the, the demographics, but I, I once heard there's over 9,000 people within just 15202 alone, and I believe it's growing. And so, again, we should not be stuck at the 200 barrier because on any given Sunday, we could probably, we could probably count the number of people that are in church. It probably, if you include assumption, probably no more than 1,000 people. So where does the other 8,000 going? So again, there's no reason why we have to hit the 200 barrier. But the question is, then, then why do we hit it? Why does any church hit the 200 barrier? And my suggestion is that really it boils down to failure to change. That's probably the biggest reason. A failure uh, to, to identify the problems and a failure to change. I mean, some people identify the problems, but they never make the change. Some people never identify the problems. And so what, again, what happens is if you don't, go past the problems, you hit the two-order barrier. If you don't make the changes, you never will grow. It just, you hit that barrier because, again, the refusal to make the changes. And changes are difficult, you know, especially when they involve, you know, a lot of, we've got a lot of heavy problems going on behind it. People would just rather ignore it, and you can't. And personally, I take responsibility because I think that we ignored a lot of the problems for the last two or three years. As a senior pastor, I take personal responsibility. I don't point the finger at anybody. But it was an eye-opener just preparing the sermon that I realized is that, yeah, we hit a 200 barrier that we shouldn't have hit. But we're there now because, again, we have problems that we haven't been able to, to fix yet. And you say, well, what kind of problems? I, I know some of you are just coming on Sunday. You don't see the problems. Everything's nice. You're coming on Sunday. You see all the good things. But if you're behind the scenes, if you're involved in church, you see problems. You see problems like uh, miscommunication. You know, people not feeling like, feeling like they're outside of the loop. They, haven't, they don't know what's going on. They haven't heard about this. Somebody does this over here. They haven't heard it here. You know, you just got this miscommunication going on. Sometimes you got unhealthy conflict going on. People that are mad at each other, they never resolve. Conflict is okay, but at some point you have to resolve that conflict. You have people falling through the cracks. People that have been going there for years, and all of a sudden they're just gone, and nobody knows why. Nobody even checks into why. People fall through the cracks because they come in new, and nobody knows they're, they're new, and it just, again, they fall through the cracks. You know, the problems of not having enough worship leader, or not worship leader, enough volunteers to serve the staff of various ministries, and what happens is the same people over and over are filling in the volunteer positions, and they get burned out, and they leave. These are all problems, and, and really they're not insurmountable problems. They're common problems to any growing church. So the problems are not the problems. The problem is when, again, a church recognizes the problem, but doesn't the problems, but don't make the necessary changes to get past them. And you say, well, what kind of changes need to be made? 
And really, we could talk for hours about the various changes that, that should be made or could be made in this church. But really, they're summarized. There's a nice summary. A guy by the name of Tim Keller, who's a, a large church pastor, a megachurch pastor out of New York, he put together kind of a short list of some of the changes, really, changes that must be made as a church grows if it's going to keep growing. And what I like to do is just kind of take the last few minutes and, and go through, through some of the, go through all of them. The first is that change that needs to be made is you can, there needs to be a shift or you need to shift some responsibilities from staff to volunteer-led ministries. See, when you're a small church, some of you have been in small churches, the pastor or the, the staff, part-time or whatever, are expected to pretty much do everything. You know, from the hospital visitations to the preaching, to changing the toilet paper, to stocking the pews, whatever it is. In a lot of small churches, the pastor does everything. And unless they're blessed, they have a, a part-time associate, then the part-time associate does everything too. And so that's just common in small churches. When I say small, I'm talking about anywhere from 50 to 100 people. And that's, you know, we saw today that, you know, as a church grows, that's not practical. And so what needs to change, actually, is the kind of the expectation that the staff does everything. As the church grows, they can't do everything. It reminds me of the story. When I first got here, I remember first kind of putting out the idea of a ministry or volunteer-led ministries, and a person says, well, what do we pay you guys for? That was the response, and, and they believed it. The person believed it. You know, we pay you guys, so you should be doing everything. No, as a church, maybe when you're a small church, when you're a large church, what the leaders need to be doing is equipping others to do the ministry, not doing all the ministry themselves, because if they try to do everything in the ministry themselves, they're going to stall like we would see in that first century church if they chose to just do it, everything themselves. And so again, you have to have, you have to shift some of those responsibilities from staff to volunteer-led ministries. And then you need increased communication. You know, when we have bad communication, that causes a lot of problems. And we try so hard to communicate, uh, especially information about the church, in many different ways. You have a small church, a bulletin is usually fine. You know, when you got 50 people, all you need is a bulletin. You start adding people, and everybody doesn't read the bulletin. And so you have people that say, well, they prefer to have it emailed to them. Or some people don't look at emails, they just look at text. Or some people don't look at text, they look at Facebook. And some people just prefer the old-fashioned phone call. So you have to have all these different communication devices in place to keep the communication flowing. And then, at the, well, at the same time, some people still complain that they never heard what was going on. So we're always looking for creative ways to get the communication out there. But really, it starts, again, with the various ministry heads talking to one another, communicating so the left hand knows what the right hand is doing. So that's a very important thing. And then you also need to have intentional assimilation. Assimilation is just a fancy word. That means, you know, taking a visitor, taking them through a pathway that allows them to get to a place where they are an active member of the church. Again, a small church doesn't need an assimilation uh, program. I remember I was in a small church uh, in Washington. used to go there on a regular basis for, for business. And it was a small church out in the middle of nowhere, and there was probably 25 people there. And every t- I'd, I'd go to church there, just, I don't know, I was close by. Every time I'd go, I mean, I'd get so much attention. It was a visitor, and it's a, a breathing visitor. We haven't seen somebody a visitor in so long, and they would kind of glob on you, and then they would immediately pull you into some form of service. 
That was their assimilation process. And unfortunately, you get in a church like that and you get freaked out and you don't go back because you know that everybody's all eyes are on you. So when you get larger, but when you get larger, again, there, you have to have a clear-cut assimilation because the, vet, the guests do not understand how you go from a visitor to an active member. So many of us have been going to these, our church so long, you forget what it's like to be a visitor. It's an awkward experience. And that's why you need some sort of a pathway. And, and I know you probably get tired of hearing it, but that's why we developed the things like the connecting class and the, and the on-ramp so you have, the visitors have a very clear pathway of what the next steps are. You know, we, so we put it on the bulletin underneath the servant series, the very clear pathway to becoming involved in this church. This is not for the members. This is for the visitors. The information's on the back. The dates you need to know. And some people say, well, you're taking up too much space to put this on the front. No, we're not. Because the bulletin is really not for you. The bulletin's really for the visitors. The bulletin is, you know how, you should know what's going on in the church. You should, if you don't know where to, what's going on, you probably are not that tapped into the church. The bulletin is nice, but again, if you were tapped into church, you would know most of the events that are happening throughout the week. So you need an assimilation process but you also need an organization. You need to be organized in your volunteer recruitment. Again, a large church or a small church, you know, that has 50 people, if you're short of staff in children's ministry, you just send somebody out and tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, get in there. We need some help, right? And, and that works for a while, again, up to 150, 200 people. But it doesn't work at a large church because a large church is just way too many people. And you don't know most of those people. And you go tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, come work in a children's ministry. They're going to say, get out of here. I don't know you. I mean, how do you feel getting tapped? You know, and in this day and age, we really couldn't tap somebody on the shoulder and pull them in for those type of ministries. And you think, well, large church, they probably have so many volunteers. They don't need any more volunteers. Well, the reality is they do because people can hide. And people assume in a large church that all the ministry positions are filled. There's enough people to already volunteer and they don't need to volunteer. So it gets more and more difficult and that's again why you need an organized volunteer recruitment process. And you need this because you want to offer a wider variety of programs. Again, when we first came here, nothing against the people, but it was mostly middle-aged, middle-class people. And if you look out in the community, the community is not middle-aged, middle-class people. And so as we begin to invite more people in, we invited more diversity in. And so you have people from different age groups, you have people from demographics, different ethnicities, people, people with different challenges, people with different maturity level, all the people, people that come in with addictions, mental illness, you got all these people coming in. And so you can't, like, you can't just be like a small church that just offers a Sunday school. You have to continue to broaden your variety of programs that are offered. And so you need to put that in place if you want to move from a, a small church to a mid-sized church. And really what finally, you have to be allowed decisions to be made by a few instead of the many. And this is hard because in a small church, when you have 50 people and you want to change the color of the carpet, well, just tell everybody to hang out after the first service because that's the only service you have and let's pick a color of the carpet, right? You can't do that now. You wouldn't want to do that now. 
I mean, as much as you'd like to give everybody a voice, the reality is everybody doesn't need a voice and everybody doesn't even want a voice. And so as you grow in a church, you actually, like we saw in today's passage, you take the, uh, the responsibilities and you give it to a few people along with the authority to make the decisions and then you trust them to do their job. Again, that's a, that's a big change that some people don't want to go through. And thinking about all these changes... Some of you are probably thinking, you know what, Chuck? I just want to come to church. I don't want to get involved in all these changes. You know, can't we just stop growing? And the answer is, sure, we could stop growing. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an option. But the problem is, you know, if you're a church that wants to go with God, you can't stop. You know, because again, you know, if you want to go with God, you've got you to continue to, to, to move with him. You can't stay where you are and go with God because God will not allow that. What will happen is he's going to allow you to either die or to grow. If you don't go with God, you're going to get stuck. You're not going to deal with these problems. People are going to leave and you're going to die. It's going to happen. It happens all around us. It's happened all around Pittsburgh. If that's the kind of church you want, I can point out a lot of churches where they refuse to grow. And a lot of them get what they want. A dead church. Hard words, but truth. Because the church was not designed. If anything that's clear in the book of Acts is that the church is designed to grow. I know we don't like change, but the church is designed to grow. And so personally speaking, and I know a lot of people don't agree with this, but personally speaking, I would love to be a church that would just pass through, just blast through the 200 barrier. Wouldn't it be fun to be a church that is just, just really, really growing? I mean, again, you know, we have a community that needs Jesus. And we're worried about 200 people. We're worried about keeping our little safe environment. What if we were just to blow out the walls and just say, you know, we want to go to pass the 200 barrier. We want to go to the three to four to 500 barrier. And when we get too big for this building, we'll buy another building across town, right? You know? But that's hard because it requires change, and people don't like change. And so, again, when you change like that, you lose people, but in the long run, you gain a lot more. But really, as I wind this up, it's not about me or anybody wanting to grow the numbers. As we saw from today's passage, it's really, again, by, it's about setting first things first, continuing to preach the gospel, continue to pray, continue to worship, you know, inviting people in. And then when you face the problems as you grow, because you will grow, when you see those problems, you face them head on, you get together, you pray about it, you deal with them, and then you move on and you allow God to determine if he wants to grow your church. And again, that's, that's the pattern we see. Growth causes problems, problems require changes, changes produce more growth. So again, if we do that, I think what, what is said about the first church will be said about our church, will be said about Bellevue Christian Church. You know, as I paraphrase, paraphrase an earlier verse, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in the North boroughs increased rapidly, and a large number of ordinary people became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.